Father, we do ask for the Holy Spirit to be moving among us. I pray that we would be open to how he would bring Jesus here to speak to us. And I pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we're continuing our series this morning uh, called Life After Death, Seven Conversations with Jesus. And we're looking at all the conversations that Jesus had with his discouraged, doubting followers after his resurrection. And what we notice is that Jesus comes uh, very gently and in the course of a conversation engages people um, who are dealing with very personal difficulties. Uh, and he deals gently with them in such a way that he restores them. So we're looking at how Jesus converses with them in their, um, in their fear, in their grief, um, and, uh, and uh, in their disillusionment. This week we're going to talk about Jesus interacting uh, with people in their skepticism. And I just want to say, um, as the pastor here at Emmanuel Anglican, that I know many of you who... who uh, deal with skepticism not only in your relationships, people in your life who have a lot of skepticism about faith, but also you yourselves sometimes enter seasons of, of doubt and skepticism, and that's a really painful place to be. And I just want to say, um, if you've experienced that or if you're in that place now, you are absolutely welcome here. And all who are seeking to know more about God but who do not yet know uh, what they believe about him are welcome here also. You can be here and not be at a place where you're ready to say the creeds yet. You can be here and be uh, not at a place where you can actually say the, say, you know, renew your baptismal covenant or say it in the first place. This is a place where both skeptics and believers can, can converge and seek to know Christ. And so I just want to say that you're welcome here. And also, um, all of us have something to learn from this conversation um, between Thomas and Jesus. I'm so glad that we have with us uh, Deacon Brett Kroll. He's one of the pastors at Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, which is our sending church. Brett and his wife Julie have three kids, right? Yes. And uh, although they're drinking, you're right. (laughs) Yeah. Drinking out of the chalices at Church of the Resurrection, it's like, who knows when when that number will increase. But um, uh, Brett uh, has served in a variety of roles at Church of the Res and in the Wheaton area. One of the things he's done is he's actually engaged with um, junior high and high school students about, about sex. And so he's dealt with some very difficult topics with some very tough audiences um, and always does so with, with clarity and charity, which I personally appreciate and benefit from myself. So, uh, Brett, welcome, and uh, please bring us the word today right. from, from John. Thank you, Father. Well, it's good to be with you all again this morning. Uh, yes, as Aaron said, I've got three children. The oldest two are twin girls. We're four and a half. Caroline and Teresa, and we've been teaching the girls good manners at the table uh, from this book that is literally called The Good Manners Book, and, and one night Caroline sat out of the blue while we're at the table, she says, Papa, do you know that it is not good manners to eat with your mouth full? And I was like, oh, I'm not exactly sure that that's the problem. <laughs> Teresa caught, caught the error as well, and right after she just took a fork full of food, she said, no, sister, it's not eat with your mouth full, it's talk with your mouth full. And then she stopped, and this big grin spread across her face, like I'm doing right now. 
Before we do anything else, can we, can we just pause and reflect on the gospel story today and just remark how strange and weird it is that at the center of this story is a man sticking his fingers in the wounds of his friend? That's just very strange. Uh, I bet if I looked in the Good Manners book, there, there would be a sentence about that. And if your resurrected friend shows up for dinner, don't just go sticking your fingers in his wounds. It's a bit rude. Yeah. It is strange. It is strange, right? I mean, it's strange that he still has his wounds to begin with. That's, that's interesting. Uh, it's also remarkable, and there is a reason for that. In a minute, we'll start talking about doubt. Uh, and it, it might be worth pointing out before we kind of get to the, the meat of that topic that this story here at the end of John's Gospel is a part of a string of stories that are all meant to do one thing. Convince the reader that Jesus really was crucified in the flesh, and that he really did rise again in the flesh. That's the point of this story. That's the main point. Uh, the very graphic and physical nature of the story, I mean, Jesus is walking through walls. Uh, obviously, they're putting their fingers in his wounds. It's all to show that Jesus, who was crucified in the flesh, is now alive in the flesh. He's not a ghost, even though his body can do things that our bodies cannot do. John is saying that there is a, a new type of body, a resurrection life, that Jesus is now living in. And the Bible is very clear that if we believe in him, that will be the resurrection life that we are also given when he returns. So that, that's the, the purpose of this story. But the reason that this particular story uh, is famous is because of the doubts of Thomas. And so he's been labeled now for 2,000 years of church history as doubting Thomas. Well, actually, he's believing Thomas if you read the end of the story. But anyway, I'm sure he's got a bone to pick around that. You say one thing, and then the rest of Christian history, you're doubting Thomas. Okay. So a few weeks ago... Uh, in the New York Times, there was this article written by William Irwin called God is Not the Answer, but the Question. And the purpose of this article was to say that everybody doubts that no one, unless you're a complete fraud, could ever be absolutely 100% certain in what you believe. Now, the man writing this is, is not a Christian, um, but he says to both Christians and atheists, if anybody is like supremely confident and has never just once said, is it really true? He questions, like, can you, can you really have faith? Now, that's interesting, and, and you can agree or disagree with that thesis. Uh, but what's also really interesting is the response that he got. Within days, thousands of people had commented, uh, many of them very angry. Um, interestingly enough, many atheists, very angry. Like, how dare you say that I have doubts? Um, but I think as Christians, we would not balk at the idea that, yeah, doubt is a pretty common experience. We've wrestled with that ourselves. Um, and in some ways, we might even say that it can serve to help us mature and grow in our faith. Kind of like suffering, it, it might actually be a necessary step in the journey. But also like suffering, it is not fun. I remember being a junior in high school and this very weird uh, doubt. I mean, I was not doubting the existence of God, but there was like this span of three or four days where I doubted my own existence. In fact, at one point in this uh, three days, I remember staring into the mirror for probably like 45 minutes, just staring into the mirror and just asking, like, what is even real? Like, am I, am I just like the figment of some of the things imagination or dream? And I kind of chuckle about it now, but at the time, it was nauseating. Like, I thought I was going to throw up because if what I have been taught to believe and thought was real is not actually real, then I feel like the ground is... 
uh, taken out from underneath me. Some common doubts that we've probably all struggled with. The basic one, is God real? Is he there? Does he exist? If he does exist, is he good? And not just is he good, but is he 100% good? Or is it like, well, 90%. He's like mostly good. And most of the time he's good to be trusted. Can I really fully, completely trust him with my entire life? Is he good? Is he able? Is he powerful? That's where Thomas is at this morning. He's doubting, is the resurrection real? Is God really able to raise someone from the dead? And that is certainly the case in the modern age. We've said supernatural, miraculous. There's got to be some other explanation. Is God able? But, you know, I I wonder if there's another kind of doubt that maybe has touched us more frequently here uh, in this room. And you might believe that God is there. You might believe that he's even good and that he's powerful. But oftentimes we start to wonder, yeah, but is, is he good to me? I believe that God is loving in a general abstract way, but, but is he loving to me? Does he really care about me? Is he near? Does he hear my prayers? Does he answer them? Do any of those questions sound familiar? Well, for the next 20 to 25 minutes, uh, we will fully answer every single one of those questions. <laughs> what does Jesus think about doubt? What does he do about it? And what should we do about it? That's what we are going to talk about. And here's why this matters. Because while doubting is normal and a common experience, it is not how God wants us to live. He doesn't want us to live in doubt. And right, neither do we. Right? Who wants that nauseating feeling of I can't uh, believe in reality itself? He does not want us to walk in the shadows of doubt. In fact, one of Jesus' most common corrections to his disciples was have faith, believe, don't doubt. In fact, he says that to Thomas here. He says, do not, do not doubt. Turn off of the path of doubting. Shift directions and turn onto the path of believing. The voice of the Lord calls us to faith. I would say it's the voice of the evil one that calls us to doubt. I mean, remember way back at the beginning in the garden? It was the serpent who said, Eve, did God really say? So he's been doing it from the beginning. But thanks be to God, Jesus came to destroy the devil's work, including the seeds of doubt that he has sown in our minds. So then what does Jesus do with the doubters? All right, let's turn to the text. If you have your Bibles, you can open it to John 20 or your bulletin to the gospel reading. What does Jesus do when he comes to the doubters? All right, so he shows up. Now, prior to this, all the disciples had been together on Easter Day, the day of the resurrection, and they had seen Jesus. He showed up just like he did in our story today, and just like in the story today, he showed them his wounds, and they put their fingers in, his, uh, in the marks in his hands and in his side. So the exact same thing, but a week earlier, Thomas was not there. And they tried to tell him about it. We've seen the Lord. And he said, unless I also put my fingers in, his, in the holes in his hands and in his side, I, I will not believe. So then a week later, on the eighth day, after the resurrection, Jesus comes and he does the same thing again. He says to Thomas, peace be with you. Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. How accommodating he is to Thomas. Yes, he he corrects him. He says, don't disbelieve, believe. 
But I see that more as, as an invitation rather than a stern rebuke. Because what does he do? He meets Thomas exactly where he's at. He does the very thing that Thomas said he needed. Thomas said, I need this. Jesus said, I will give you what you need so that you can believe. Jesus wants us to believe. He wants to reveal himself. Jesus does not expel the doubter, but rather reveals himself to Thomas and invites him to go further in his faith. Isn't that remarkable? He does not expel him from the band of 12 and say, uh, okay, well, Thomas, because you doubted, you're now with the 70. And if it happens again, you'll be in with the multitude, all right? So just watch. <laughs> it's interesting, though. We, we, we should keep in mind, contrast this with the Jewish leaders, because they also asked for proof. They said, tell us plainly if you are the Messiah at his trial. And what did he say? I'm not going to tell you. If I told you, you would not believe. And at other points in the story, they ask for signs and wonders. They say, show us that you are who you say you are. Give us a sign. And to them he says, I will not give you any sign. Not to this wicked generation. And yet to the disciples, he's showing them signs and wonders. And he's often saying, hey, look, if you don't even believe my words, believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Well, that's interesting. What do we make of that? Why to the Jewish leaders is he not very accommodating? And yet to his followers, he's very accommodating. He's saying, look at the signs. Look at what I've done. Here's why. Jesus looks at the heart. He sees the heart, and he knows the difference between the bullied believer and the scoffing cynic. Let me explain that a little bit. If you're a bullied believer, you are a believer. You want to believe, and you feel bullied by your doubts. You feel assailed and attacked by them. You don't want these doubts. It's painful for you. And Jesus has a lot of compassion, patience. He's very accommodating. He sees your heart. But for those who are scoffing cynics, they don't really care. This story tells us Jesus doesn't really have a lot of time for them. Jesus saw Thomas's heart. He saw the hearts of the Jewish leaders. He knew the difference between, and he met them. Now, one thing you've got to love about this story is Jesus walking through walls, right? I mean, that's just one of the coolest parts about this story. Locked doors, Jesus shows up. But isn't it interesting? That's a great picture for a doubting heart. A locked door. A room with locked doors, right? Kind of this like, yeah, if you want to show up, you're going to have to make it through a locked door and just prove yourself to me. And in this story, Jesus says, okay, I can do that. Uh, there was one time, Julie is, is my wife, and she went to a Christian college, and they had a, a meeting there of people who, who loved ministry of the Holy Spirit, and they were training others to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit, which involves hearing God's voice, praying for others in prophetic ways, and this was all completely new for Julie. And so she's sitting there listening to the teaching, both wanting to engage, but also hesitant. She kind of had that locked door feeling. And she said, all right, uh, when they were saying, if you want to pray to receive uh, the, the Holy Spirit and the ability to minister in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit, just come forward, like you guys do here on a Sunday morning. Ask somebody to pray for you. And Julie felt this nudge, to go and receive prayer, but she did not move. She's like, I'm not going to move. And she told God, you have to send somebody over to me because I'm not going to move. Right? Locked doors. And what happened? This Australian woman, I can do an English accent. I'm not going to try with the Australian. This Australian woman from the grad school came over to her and just said, I think the Lord has a word for you. He just wants to tell you that you're not forgotten. 
And that ministered so deeply to Julie because there she was in the locked doors, in the room with locked doors of her heart, saying, God, you're just going to have to come through the wall. And he did, through this Australian woman. So Jesus has compassion on those who are bullied believers. We want to believe, but sometimes we just don't have the strength on our own. And he, he'll go through locked doors to prove himself to you. Now, I think part of the reason that Jesus has compassion is that he knows what it means to need faith. So follow me on this. It's kind of interesting. Jesus needed to exercise faith as much as you or I do. That was part of him being fully human. As Christians, we believe that, yes, he's fully God, but he's also fully human. And that when he came to this earth, he gave up the advantages. He did not give up being divine, but he gave up the advantages of being divine. And he had to experience life as a human, just like the rest of us. Which means the devil laid traps for him, hoping that Jesus would succumb to doubt by putting questions to him that were meant him to kind of uh, question the foundations of his faith. So, for example, in the temptation in the desert, you remember the story where Jesus is fasting in the wilderness. What's the first thing that the devil says to him? If you are the Son of God. He's presenting Jesus with the opportunity to doubt his identity as the Son of God. And that same question comes back where? When Jesus is hanging on the cross, those same words come through the mouths of the chief priests. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. Prove it. Now, like Jesus experiencing temptation, right? the Bible says he experienced temptation in all the ways that you and I experience temptation, and yet he never gave in to temptation. Similarly, even if Jesus is confronted with the possibility of doubt, Jesus does not doubt. And that's part of what he came to this earth to do, is to live the life that you and I could not live on our own. And so where he's presented with the possibility of doubt, he chooses faith every time. He does not doubt. But he does have to exercise faith. It's not just like, he's not just pretending. It's not like it's just a play or a show for him. He really has to exercise faith. I think we see this most clearly uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Like the rest of us, what Jesus knew and believed about his own life and his mission had been revealed to him in his relationship with the Father and through the Scriptures. And through the Scriptures and through the revelation from his Father, through the Holy Spirit, Jesus believed that he would rise again on the third day. Uh, We can assume that he got this from the story of Jonah because he says, like Jonah, who was in the belly of the fish for three days, so too the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and then will rise. He also quotes Psalms that have certain resurrection overtones. Mm -hmm. So somehow Jesus has come to believe that he will rise again after he's crucified through the scripture and revelation of the Holy Spirit. But I think part of the agony of Gethsemane, when he's in the garden and he's sweating and actually blood is coming out of his eyes, he's crying blood, I think part of that agony might be that he had to exercise the faith that he would rise again from the dead. Because it wasn't automatic for him. Because he was human, he had to exercise faith, which means in this moment, he had to believe the most impossible thing in the world. And he really had to believe it. But he did. He did believe it. 
He was put to the ultimate faith test. Because if Jesus was wrong, that he was not going to rise again on the third day, then he risked true and ultimate separation from God, something he had never known. If he did not finally defeat death by his own death, which was his plan, and that's what he told his disciples, that's what he's going to do. But if that were not to happen, then he risked leaving the glory of heaven, giving up everything for nothing. If he did not come back from the dead, his victory would have been not a victory. And so Jesus, in the moment of Gethsemane, is having to exercise his faith to believe, no, I will rise again on the third day. And now this is not in the scriptures. It's just kind of me wondering and imagining. But I would not be surprised if the devil is there again in the Garden of Gethsemane and putting to him the questions, do you really think you will rise again on the third day? Now, I don't know that for sure. Again, that's just, that's just me wondering and imagining. But it wouldn't surprise me if that were, tr- if that were true. And you know, what, what makes it so amazing is on the cross, when Jesus cries out, he says, Father, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? It's called the cry of dereliction. Now we're not going to go into this here, but the tradition of the church has always said Jesus and the Father were never actually and fully separated. That never happened. So what's happening on that cry of dereliction? Jesus is feeling that separation. He's feeling isolation. He's feeling the darkness all around him. And that feeling is very real, even if, in fact, he is not separated from his father. And what's so amazing is it's precisely at that moment then that he lets go of his life. Even in that isolation and the darkness of that moment, he says, deeper than my feeling of isolation from heaven, I believe I will rise again on the third day. And so I give up my spirit and I die. Wow. That is incredible faith. So Jesus can have compassion on us because he knows what it means to exercise his faith. And thanks be to God, he never doubted. Please don't get confused with what I'm trying to say. He never doubted. He fully exercised his faith, but he really did have to exercise it. So then how do we deal with doubt? Well, remember that first it's his to deal with. This battle is the Lord's. But next, I think one of the ways that we can deal with doubt, think of it this way. Imagine that you're a father and that you have a 16-year-old daughter. She's very beautiful. And imagine that one night, in the middle of the night, you hear some kind of sound coming from the living room and you wake up to find that there's a 16-year-old boy who's just broken in through the window. And you're wondering, who is he and what is he doing here? That's how I want you to think about doubt. When doubt comes, when we are faced with doubt, we have different options of how we're going to respond to that. Do we entertain doubt? Come on in. I'll make you some tea. We'll watch a movie together. (laughs) My daughter's bedroom is just down the hall. I don't think so. Instead, he's going to get his bat. He's putting this guy in the corner. He said, you have three seconds to explain who you are and what you're doing in my house. That is the attitude you can take with doubt. You can. You can doubt your doubts. Right Again, back to the garden. I love it. When, when God comes to them and says, who told you that you were naked? He's given us permission to say, what is the source of these doubts? Where did they come from? Who told you? Fill in the blank. I, I remember at one point I was wrestling through a particular doubt around like 
yeah, isn't it kind of just a, a convenient coincidence that our picture of heaven is just like everything that we would want it to be? Aren't we just like projecting our own desires into, into a perfect place that is beyond this realm and just saying that's heaven? And that really troubled me for a while until I was, was in school and studying and found out that that idea came from some guy named Feuerbach in the 19th century. See, I, that, that thought came to me from the evil one, like this earth shattering, like, oh no, this doubt will undo my faith. But I realized, no, the source of this doubt is it's actually some German guy from the 19th century. And it sort of disarmed that doubt. Who told you you were naked? What is the source of these doubts? You have permission to doubt your doubts and to question them. And to say, I'm just not going to give you free reign. Who let you into my head? All right. Another thing we can do is instead of looking for certainty, we should look for Jesus. When we're confronted with doubt, we're grasping for certainty. We're grasping for some way that in our mind we can work through all of the logic and syllogisms to have a completely perfect, airtight formula so that now I can believe what I want to believe. We are looking for certainty. But I think certainty, and this is kind of like chicken or the egg, but it seems like certainty does not come before faith. Certainty comes after faith. It's like, well, that's, that's kind of the mystery of faith, right? So instead of looking for certainty and working in your mind, can I get certainty on this? Instead, look for Jesus. Like in our story, he comes to Thomas. What Thomas needs is that personal, close encounter with the Lord. Not certainty. If we're looking for certainty, Jesus might disappoint us. If we're looking for Jesus, he will not disappoint us. What's great about this is this works for believers who are struggling with doubts, but it also works for those who are, who are not believers and they're looking for answers that they're wanting to know is the truth. Rather than try to help them or encourage them or say, well, you need to be certain about this, we just say, look for Jesus. Ask Jesus to come and to reveal himself to you. And just see what happens. Okay, so we can pretend like we're the father of the 16-year-old daughter. Doubt our doubts. Instead of looking for certainty, let's look for Jesus. We can also ask for the gift of faith. And this one might be the most important one. Asking for the gift of faith. Because what we're doing is we're asking for Jesus' own faith. The faith that he had when he was on the cross and said, I know I will rise again on the third day. And this perhaps is maybe the virtue of doubting. If you are a bullied believer and you, you feel bullied by doubts, you're actually the first one to admit, yeah, my own little faith is not enough. When I try to muster up the faith to just believe, it doesn't, somehow it doesn't work. It's like telling a three-year-old, just stop crying. Just stop crying. Stop crying. Like, you can't do it. Never works. Stop doubting. Just stop doubting. Just, doesn't work. Instead, ask for the gift of faith. Give me more faith, Father. Reveal yourself to me. The three theological virtues of faith, hope, and love are called theological virtues specifically because they are gifts. They're not something that we can try harder to have. So instead of trying harder to have faith, ask. Ask. Because again, 
Like Thomas versus the Jewish leaders, Jesus sees your heart. If you are one who is seeking and you want to believe, it may not be instantaneous. It may not be as like clear and dramatic as the story with Thomas, but I'm here to tell you, God is faithful. I'm here to tell you that he promises if you seek, you will find what you seek. And if you seek the answer through your doubts and you want to seek Jesus as the answer through your doubts, eventually, I can't promise you when or how, but eventually you will find the answer to the questions. You will find it in Jesus. But ask himself to reveal himself to you. Ask for the gift of faith, not simply to try harder. All right, the last thing that I'll say, this is kind of a, a side note, but it might be an important one. Sometimes we find ourselves in seasons of doubt, and it can be that the, the reason that we're having a hard time either connecting with the Lord or hearing from Him or having assurance is because in a different area of our life, we're living a compromised life. We've made decisions, and our conscience has told us, this is not pleasing to God. All right, so different from like, struggling against sin and not wanting to sin and falling and stumbling but getting up again and repenting and asking forgiveness. That's one thing. I'm talking about when you've stopped the struggle and you said, you know what? I'm just going to accept that this is how I'm going to live. Whether it's deep down, you know, I think my, my drink limit should be maybe lower than it is, but I'm just going to choose to let it be what it is. Or I think deep down my conscience is telling me that I'm going further with my boyfriend or my girlfriend than I should but I'm just gonna to choose to do that anyway. If we live in an ongoing state of compromised faith, it's gonna be really hard to hear the voice of the Lord. And this may not seem directly related at first, but it actually makes a lot of sense. Because we're saying, God, why don't you speak to me? Why don't you tell me that you're there? Why don't you answer my doubts? Why don't you be clear? And the Lord would say, I'm being clear over here, and you're hardening your heart to what I'm saying. And every time we do that, it's like we're dialing down the volume of his voice. And that's going to affect, can we hear him on the doubts over here? Again, this is not if you're struggling but repenting and seeking. This is if you're living in a place and deep down your conscience is saying, I know that this behavior or these set of behaviors or this trajectory that I'm on, I know it's not pleasing to God. Deep down my conscience is telling me the conscience is the instrument of the Holy Spirit to guide us and help us. And if you do not have peace in your conscience and you're also struggling with doubt, there might be a connection. Now again, that's not to say that every time we experience doubt, it's because of a sin. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that if we choose to live a compromised life, then we're opening up the door and of course, doubt is going to piggyback right in on that uh, compromising choices that we're making. So as, as we continue the service today, uh, there might be a few ways to respond. Uh, the first might be just to let your, your heart be open for the Lord to say, all right, is, is there something that if I'm honest, you're talking to me about and I'm, I'm just resisting you, I'm resisting the Holy Spirit. And if that's so, today is a wonderful day for you because the invitation is for repentance and renewal and to say, I will stop resisting the Holy Spirit. The wonderful good news about the Lord is that he doesn't require you to be perfect, right? Because this is not saying, well, then you have to be perfect before God will speak to you. But that's not how God ever speaks to us, right? In that moment when your conscience is saying, I don't think I should go see this movie, 
God is not saying, I want you to be perfect from lust. I want you to have perfect self-control and never struggle again. No, he's just saying one thing. I don't want you to go see that movie. Turn around or go see Jungle Book. I heard it's pretty good. <laughs> God is not asking you to be perfect, but he's asking you in those moments where you follow your conscience because the conscience is the instrument of the Holy Spirit. And the more we're doing that, the more we're turning up the dial, and the more we're going to find, hmm, my doubts aren't completely going away, but, but I'm, I'm hearing the voice of the Lord speak more clearly than I have before. There's a connection. So open your heart to see, is there anything, any way that I am resisting the Holy Spirit? Give that over. If not, and you're in a place where you're either just completely assailed by doubts and you don't know why, or you're in a place of being faithful and you just want to be encouraged, then when you come to the Eucharist today, the Lord Jesus has given us, just like with Thomas, where he says, put your hand here in my nail marks and in my side, in the Eucharist, Jesus is saying, touch my body. And if you have doubts, place them in my side. Place them in the bread. Place them here at the cross. Give them to me. And receive from me my faith that alone can save. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.